Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, my name is Pete Bauer. And I am Dorothea Bauer. And this is My Name is Not Steve. We are still not named Steve. Nope, we are storytellers that talk about storytelling. But only very rare occasions. (laughs) Yeah, we usually meander. We have tangential conversations. Is that a word? Tangential, yeah. (laughs) When you go on a tangent. Yeah. I do that a lot. How would you say that? I don't know. So you're correcting me and you don't even know if it's right. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, you do (laughs) tend to be a little scatterbrained. I do, yeah. It's kind of annoying. I know. Especially during our story conferences. Okay, but... We have story wow, conferences. There's, there's a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of pausing going on there. <laughs> we have story conferences all the time. And our listeners don't know what it's like to have you talk about one subject for eight years. <laughs> 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 so while I do need to focus my brain more, <laughs> I, I don't really feel all that bad. <laughs> Wow, I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> All right, well, but it is a little frustrating for someone trying to accomplish something specific and you suddenly go, ooh, I saw a balloon today. It was pretty. I don't talk. I, you're making me sound <laughs> like I'm flaky. I'm not no. flaky. No. Uh-uh. I'm not. Nope. All right, so, Dorothea, last time we were talking about that Satan wants to kick our butt. Mm-hmm. Um, that's still true today. Yeah, Yeah. every day. Yeah. And what's really interesting is that the Bishop of Phoenix actually wrote a, he calls it an apostolic exhortation to the Catholic men. And it's basically what he's calling the Catholic men to do. But what's interesting is that how it relates to what we were talking about last week. So he says in it, for example, he said, the world is under attack by Satan, as our Lord said it would be. And this battle is occurring in the church itself. And the devastation is all too evident. And he has a number of instances and statistics that talk about the decrease in the participation in the Mass, especially by men, since this is directed towards men. He says, One of the key reasons that the Church is faltering under the attacks of Satan is that many Catholic men have not been willing to step into the breach to fill the gap that lies open and vulnerable to further attack. A large number have left the faith, and many who remain Catholic, quote-unquote, practice the faith timidly, and are only minimally committed to passing the faith on to their children. What's interesting is that if you believe that the church does, that it is the mystical body of Christ, then Satan would want to attack it, as we talked about last time. And this bishop in Phoenix is talking specifically about that attack and the role that men could have in fighting that attack. So it's pretty cool. It's a really cool document. There's also a great video that introduces the idea. And we'll put it in the show notes. But it was interesting to me that literally the day after we got done with our podcast, this came out, and it's exactly what we were talking about. So anyway, I thought that was cool. Another thing is that I just finished the third Gabby Wells novel, Sins and Suicide. Yes. And I mentioned last time, I think it was the last time, maybe the time before, that I put myself under a time crunch to try to see if I could get it done quicker, be a little more focused. And how did that go? Well, as I said before, I I wanted to do it in 15 days, and I got it done in 33, which isn't bad. Uh, One week was actually I had really bad back problems, and I couldn't sit (laughs) in the chairs that I normally write in. So I actually have a week there where I didn't write hardly at all. So if I subtract that, I did okay. 
It's something I'm going to try again. But one thing that I realized during it is I'm going to have surgery some point before the end of the year. And so I'm trying to get the third and fourth book done. And as I was going through this process of trying to get this done in a short period of time, I really felt the pressure of time on on the process of writing. I really felt uh, an immense amount of pressure to to get it done. And that worked to my benefit, but also to my detriment. When I got near the end of the story, there were things that I wrote and I'm like, you know, it's just not good enough. And I had to stop caring about the time and I just had to worry about the story. At that point, I feel I, like that's kind of your ongoing battle with writing in general. Yeah, it is. Well, you know, with the surgery stuff, you know, I just feel like you know, I don't know how healthy I'm going to be after any one of these surgeries that I've had. I mean, I've, I've recovered okay in the past, but still, you just never know. So I've, I have these goals I want to accomplish, and I'm trying to accomplish them when I know I, I can physically. So I always have had that pressure on me, especially now. I, there would be nothing better for me than to to have this next surgery and to recover successfully and then have nothing left for me to do health-wise for like 10 years or so. Because then I, that pressure, that time pressure would go away. And then I could take my time and, and do it right. You know, there's so many stories. I have like 20 stories in my head that I want to, I want to write into book form. And I'm just feeling so, so much pressure right now to get as these four done before my surgery, because the four actually complete a, as I mentioned before, a, a kind of a, a mini arc in Gabby's life. So I'd like to get those done before um, I have my next surgery. I don't know if I'm going to though, honestly, I, I don't, I'm doubting I'll be able to do it. But that's what I'd like to do. But anyway, the point is, is that when I stopped focusing on the time aspect and took that off my plate and said, well, you're near the end. Let's just focus on making the story work. Make sure it's effective. I took a couple extra days over that time frame. And I think it came out really well. I'm really excited about it. We have to do our internal edit, but, but I'm really excited about it. But, you know, I think the time that you gave yourself to really try and get these books done is a good time frame to work with and to set those standards for yourself for the future with your other books. No, I agree. I think that with young adult thrillers especially, and thrillers in general, they can be shorter novels. Usually page turners are shorter novels. If I can do 1,500, 2,000 words a day, then I should be able to get a book done within two months, at least the first draft of it assuming that there'll be days where you're struggling and things will take longer. So if I give myself two months a draft to get it done, and then, you know, it'll take months after that to go through the process of editing and, and polishing, I think that's a good habit to get into. Because honestly, if I can do it, I'd finish four novels this year, which is pretty insane. Considering that's amazing. I had none and we didn't publish the first one till April. But next year, I want to do five because I really want to finish this series. That means I really do have to have that sort of discipline. That's why I'm hoping, and I'm hopeful that after the surgery, I'll be able to do that, you know, and I won't have to worry about any sort of health things for a while. That would be nice. But it has been an interesting challenge to make a false deadline and hold yourself accountable to it. It's just a certain amount of discipline that's required. So fortunately, I would say overall, it was a success because I finished the novel just two days after my original goal of doing it within a month. So it's not bad. The thing that I've realized about setting deadlines for yourself in your personal life is that you have to have someone else hold you accountable to that. Because in work, your boss holds you accountable. In school, your teachers hold you accountable. You don't really have a choice. There's a movie that I saw at one point where one of the characters wanted to start a project called Julie and Julia. And she was like, well, I have to set a deadline because I never finish anything. And her husband says, oh, I love deadlines. He's like, I love the sound they make as they go whooshing past. 
And if you don't have other people holding you accountable, a lot of times other things will get in the way. You know, just look at my life as an example of that. You know, talking about work-life balance and how I failed at that miserably this past year. <laughs> One of the things that can help you be accountable is actually making people aware in public that you're doing it. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up on this show is because it makes me accountable outside of this house and outside of the office where I write that I have to complete this under a certain deadline. So I don't mind making that sort of information public because it helps spur me when I really don't want to do it. You know, there's some days that writing is awesome and most days writing is just, it's just hacking through. It's just really figuring it out. So it's important that you, the days that you don't want to do it, you do it anyway. You know, it's like any kind of project. It's even like dieting. You know, one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given about dieting was one I did not take. And they said, <laughs> if you really have health goals you want to achieve, then post a picture of yourself on Facebook every day. Oof. Yeah. Because if you're doing that, yeah, you are gonna, going yeah. to achieve your goals. Yeah. I don't know. That's And I didn't do that. <laughs> you know, one of the best examples I had heard of self-inflicted public pressure was a story of two women that wanted to lose weight and they worked in the same office. And so what they did is that they told everyone in the office they were going to lose a certain amount of weight by a certain amount of time. And then they put a big can of Alpo dog food on the desk. And they said, if we don't, we will eat this in front of you. So whenever... Is that bad for you to eat? No, you can eat dog food. It's just not great food. But obviously it's safe for consumption, you know, but it's designed for dogs. So it's like the scraps and stuff that we wouldn't eat. They put in there for protein and so forth. But anyway, the point is, is that they had that out there on their desk every day. So in the morning when someone came by with donuts, they just had to look at the dog of Alpo, <laughs> you know. When someone wanted them to cheat or whatever, they were tempted. They both had each other to support each other. Mm -hmm. And they had a dog can of Alpo staring them in the face. Half the people are tempting them, you know, to right, try to get them to break. Right, because they want to see it. <laughs> yeah. And the other half are going, man, I, I don't know. Are they going to do it? I, they're going to eat Alpo in front of us, you know. That kind of public exposure can be really, really good if it's done in a healthy way. I will never eat a can of Alpo if I don't finish the manuscript sometime. <laughs> I'm just, that's not going to be a, a thing. That's not going to be the pressure you <laughs> no, that's put on yourself. not going to be the thing. No, <laughs> no not going to happen. But one of the cool things that I, I've been doing, I mentioned, um, I think it was one or two podcasts ago, about the crisis of faith I had where I tore everything off my walls of all the movie posters and, and awards and anything that I had won before because it was it was tied to what I wanted to do with my life and not what I think God wanted me to do with my life at that point. So I said that God would have to put stuff on the wall after that. So anything that he wanted on the wall, he'd have to make happen. So what's really cool is that I already have the book cover designed for Lost and Found. And I have the book cover designed for Sins and Suicide. And what's cool is that today, because I finished the book yesterday, today I'm going to put that picture of that book cover on my wall. That's awesome. That's, the, that's like the reward I get, you know, because I had it on my desk all week. And I could have put it up at any point, but I'm like, no, this is my little reward, which you also want to do, you know, when you're trying to set a goal. So my reward is nailing that up on the wall and showing it as complete. So, that is going to be so exciting. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I really like that book cover too. Your book covers are going to be so disturbing to look at. <laughs> I know. I know. When they're all done, if I do all nine of them, I'm just going to have a lot of evil people staring at me. Yeah. <laughs> That's just... That's going to be comforting. Well, I mean, is it really that much different than looking in the mirror for you? Oh, that's, <laughs> oh, that's nice to hear from a daughter. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> so the topic I really wanted to talk about today 
Yes. Am I brilliant? No. (laughs) That's okay. I can't find it either. (laughs) That would be a short subject. (laughs) No, I want to talk about teenagers. I was never one of those. I don't (laughs) know. You were a teenager between nine and nine years and one month. <laughs> there was a good 30 days where you were a teenager. Yeah, you you skipped right <laughs> past that. It was so odd. I tell people at work, I was like, you know, my daughter's the easiest person in the world to raise because she's self-motivated. She gets straight A's. She doesn't like to wear makeup. She didn't want to drive. And she had no interest in dating the boys her age. And I was like, this is the easiest dad moment ever. It was awesome. I still don't like driving. I mean, it's necessary, (laughs) but I'm still not a fan. (laughs) So the reason I want to focus on teenagers is, you know, the Gabby Wells novel is a young adult novel. And one of the cool things about being a teenager is that you kind of are starting to understand how the world works and you kind of see how the boundaries have been set up by the previous generations, but you're not jaded or cynical yet. And you question naturally at that age, authority. So you look at those lines and you go, are they drawn in the right place? Why do I have to follow that rule? Can I do something else? What ends up happening is that a lot of teenagers invest a lot of time playing video games. But that's not the point. (laughs) The point is that the other teenagers, the, the few of them, the small percentage of them do something amazing. Because the other thing about being a teenager, you have energy, you have time, you have interest, and you have access, and you actually have very little responsibility. Teenagers do not realize how important time is. Because when I look at my work day, you know, just thinking back to the two years ago when I was still in college, I was a full-time student and I had an internship and I had a job and I still had free time because my schedule worked out in such a way that I had some classes and then I would go to work, then I would go to my internship, then I would have another class, then I would go to work again. But there was a lot of time for me to do things in between. And it was during the day when things were open and it was easy to get access to the resources that you needed. Now that I'm working a full-time position after college, there's absolutely no free time. And and you don't even realize that because I think I actually calculated out my day and I didn't just do the eight hours at work. You also take into consideration getting ready in the morning, cooking food because you're an adult and you have to do that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Transportation, all of these other things that gas that eat into your time. And I'm like, "Hmm, I have about an hour a day. If I get the amount of sleep I'm supposed to get, I have about an hour a day to actually do something. Yeah, it does take up a lot of time. And that's why when you're a teenager, the the kids that are really focused, that are kind of single focused, can accomplish so much. Because if you you go by that 10,000 hours things we talked about before, about it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert or skilled at something, then those teenagers can burn through those hours really, really quickly. Because they have food and shelter they don't have to provide normally. They have time and interest and access to research and do what they want to do. And then they can try and fail with very little risk to themselves. And they don't have responsibilities like children or spouses to get in the way of of stopping them from taking chances. Not all teenagers don't have kids. Yeah, Yeah, there was a section of your yearbook that was dedicated to what exactly? Uh, Teen mothers. And Uh. then there was another one dedicated to tattoos. Even though the tattoos were against school policy. Yeah. That was neat. And not all of them were in places that should be shown in a yearbook. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I went to a very interesting high school. (laughs) Yes. So if you look in history and if you look in time today, there's a lot of teens that have done or are doing really cool things. 
For example, a couple of years ago, there was a 17-year-old named Angela Zhang. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. She won a $100,000 grand prize for developing a possible cancer cure. I read about her. Right. It was incredible. Her science teacher was talking about it and reading her paper on her proposed theory for curing cancer. The news reporter asked the teacher, what is she saying? And her teacher goes, I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah, she was really, really smart. (laughs) There was another guy, Jack Andraka, maybe. I hope that's right. He won the Youth Achievement from the Smithsonian American Ingenuity Award for inventing a method to detect lethal cancer. That was a mouthful. 15-year-old. I know. (laughs) I should get an award, right? And and this is one I really love. This girl, Rose Taylor, was 13 years old when she made her debut in New York Fashion Week as a designer. I know who she is. Is she the girl with gray hair? But that's amazing. A 13-year-old is designing her own clothes and gets on New York Fashion Week. There are people who spend their whole lives trying to get there that don't. You look at the kids now that are on like the the food channels that are cooking their own food and, and competing and things like that. It's just really amazing because they have the time and the access to do this stuff. Even in history, you know, Joan of Arc was only 13 when she was inspired by God to lead France. At 18, she led France to a victory over the English during the Hundred Years' War, and she was martyred a year later. Bobby Fischer, he was an international chess champion. He competed in one at 14. Mozart wrote an opera at 14. Nadia Kamenichi, she was a gymnast from Russia back in the Soviet Union days who was the first gymnast to get a perfect score in the Olympic competition. Wow. She was only 14. David from the Bible, David and Goliath, he was only 14 or 15 years old when he slung the rock at Goliath, who was his massive best soldier of this entire other kingdom, and killed him. On and on and on. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein at 18. Alexander the Great started to found his first colony at 16, and Louis Braille invented the Braille system at 15. That's incredible. Yeah. But, you know, I I hear about these people, and some of them are genuinely brilliant. Like, I could not find a cure for cancer. I'm not smart enough for that. But there are things that you can do, even if you aren't gifted in the sciences or you aren't gifted in athletics, that can still be really powerful. One of my favorite magazines I got when I was growing up was this magazine called Sweet 16, and it was a Christian magazine, so it wasn't all about sex and drugs. It was about becoming healthy teenagers for young girls. It was fantastic. And they had stories in there about real teenagers. Some of them were incredible. Some of them were about kids who saw that when kids are being moved around in foster care, they're given a garbage bag. Put all your stuff in the garbage bag and then we'll move you to another place. And this one young woman was so upset by that. She's like, well, I'm going to get them backpacks. And so she organized this whole charity to get these kids in foster care backpacks. Because if you're a child being uprooted from your home... Being handed a garbage bag, that's just, you're, you're garbage. That's what you're telling those kids. Right. And she didn't love that message. She wanted those kids to feel special and know that they were worth investing in. So in these backpacks were, I think she put books and teddy bears. And it was this huge charity drive that she organized. And she just saw that something was broken and, and took the initiative to fix it. There were other girls who wrote about going undercover in a fat suit to bring awareness to bullying in schools. And they volunteered to do that as well. So there are a lot of really incredible, incredible teenagers going out there and just passionately working hard. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. And it makes me look back on my teenhood and go, what the hell did I do? (laughs) (laughs) I did nothing. That's why I was joking about video (laughs) games earlier. I 
I was a teenager at the advent of video games, home video games anyway. You rode your bike. You were at least outside. No, that's true. We rode our bikes everywhere. I watched movies and read books. Yeah. My son mastered PlayStation games. One of my favorite stories of my son is that (laughs) he got in trouble and he was, I don't know, I guess he was like 10, maybe nine or 10. And we were like, "You're, you're playing too many video games and you're not listening. So go in your bedroom and you read something. You have to read for an hour. He goes in his bedroom and we check on him about, you know, five, 10 minutes later. And he has every PlayStation manual <laughs> from every game stacked on one on top of the other. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, you said I had to read something. <laughs> so he's reading about the games he wasn't playing. It was awesome. I was like, man, I have to be more specific with this kid. <laughs> but if you look at like Steve Jobs, Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, were all 19 when they started their companies. Wow. 19. It's just amazing. That's one of the reasons I put the Gabby Wells universe in that time, because it's a time where you're trying to figure things out and that you don't mind breaking the rules, you know, and Gabby's really good about breaking rules, actually, but for the right reason. She's as dedicated as those people that we listed there. She's as focused. She's just tries to overcome some some bad history in her family that's kind of altered her and, and made her a little darker and depressive than she should be. But one of the reasons I put that in there is because teenagers, if they really focused, have the chance to do something great. And adults look at teenagers, and if they see someone with drive and focus and a goal, they want to help them achieve it because they know that's rare to have that sort of focus at that age. And they know how much, like you know, as we talked about, free time that they can invest in it to try and improve themselves. So, Well, and it's interesting because thinking about that, kids and teenagers breaking rules, unless you're getting involved in something you really shouldn't be like drugs or hard crimes and things like that, things that will get you arrested. There's an interesting carelessness that teenagers have because they're minors, because they don't have any of those responsibilities, but also because if they get in trouble, they're not going to get in as much trouble. One of my favorite quotes from another story that I read was, And I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember it correctly, but it was, if you're going to do something crazy, do it while you're young, because eventually they'll just tell you you're old. Like, (laughs) you know, once, once you reach a certain age, you don't want to break those rules because the consequence of breaking those rules outweighs the potential good that breaking them would do. Yeah. You know, I kind of understand that because, I mean, I've been writing in one form or another since I was nine or 10 years old, but I only started writing novels in my 40s. You know, and so there's something weird about that. It feels weird to start that late. But then I read interviews with people who started. There's this one woman who started writing novels at 75 and has like a couple of best-selling novels. You know, so stories are stories and it's never too late. But it does feel like, man, why wasn't I doing this before? You know, why did I invest the time before? And honestly, it wasn't my path at the time. Still, starting at 40 is, uh, in your 40s is different than starting at 20, you know, or 19. And no matter what stage you are in your life, you're always going to feel like other people are better than you. And a lot of people are doing better things than you, but that doesn't invalidate the work that you're doing. A lot of people would probably compliment the fact that I have a job at the company that I work at at such a young age. But when I look at other teenagers who have done so much in their free time in high school and college, I feel like I've accomplished nothing. (laughs) You know, it's... It's insane to think of how powerful some young people can be. Some young ladies. I'm so old. <laughs> I know. You're, gosh, you're, you're in your early 20s. Well, actually, it, it was funny because I am 22. And I was doing this project with a group of interns at work. One of them didn't know me personally, but they emailed me and they said, excuse me, Miss Bauer. 
And I'm like, yes, child, what what advice do you need from me? I'm obviously your superior. Like I was just eating it up. <laughs> and you're right about that, where it doesn't matter what age you start, especially if you're writing, you can always feel insecure about it. The, I read a quote recently from another author that said, author Jonathan Ryan, who said that writers are in a perpetual state of insecurity. And anyone who doesn't think that they're insecure doesn't understand writing. It doesn't matter if you're Stephen King, you know, and you've written so many novels or James Patterson. There are times in all of their lives where they're writing and they're looking at the page going, oh my gosh, this is the, a pile of crap that needs to be incinerated, you know? It's <laughs> No one thing. can ever see this, ever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so it, it is tough. But teenagers just are so... They have so many opportunities if they take the time to focus. And that's what I love about the characters in the Gabby Wells series is that Gabby's kind of focused. Her friend Scott is is really the ultimate teen who has long-term plans and goals. And then you have like friend Emma who is enjoying everything it is to be irresponsible before the world gets too difficult. You know, she's enjoying and indulging on all that. Anyway, it's just it's just cool to to write in that world because, you know, I was in that world once. And it's fun to explore all the different levels and all the different experiences that teenagers have depending on who they are. And one thing that you read recently was really, really interesting to me. And it was the idea that most of the apostles, except Peter, were teenagers. Were teenagers. In this conversation that I was reading online that I shared with you and will now share with the internet, there was a lot of evidence posted to support this theory. Now, I have not gone through and validated all of this evidence, so if it is inaccurate, I apologize. But to start with, this is a conversation between several people. The first person comments, no, you don't understand how frustrated I am that we always depict the apostles as old men, especially when it comes to during Jesus alive stuff. They were probably late teens to early 20s, given the time and description of some biblical passages. They were not ancient old men with long beards and wrinkles at the Last Supper. They were young adult rebels with a cause. Another person replies, why this is possible. They were probably all underage except for Peter. In Exodus 30, 14 through 15, Jewish law states that every male over the age of 20 is to pay a half shekel of census offering when they visit the temple of God. In Matthew 17, 24 through 27, Jesus instructs Peter to fish up this tax. Peter finds a shekel in the mouth of the fish he catches, enough to pay the tax for two men, himself and Jesus. You could conclude that the others were underage and did not need to pay. In Matthew 11.25, Luke 10.21, and John 13.33, Jesus calls his disciples little children. We learn that Peter had a wife when Jesus healed his mother-in-law. In those ancient times, a Jewish man receives a wife after the age of 18. Again, no other disciples' wives are mentioned, so they are unmarried and probably under 18. Jewish children began intensive study at young ages, but education for most concluded by age 15. For those bright or wealthy enough, higher education consisted of studying under a local rabbi. If they didn't find a rabbi that accepted them as a student, then they entered the workforce by their mid-teens. The disciples, already working men, must have been rejected by other rabbis when Jesus handpicked them for further education as his disciples. In light of this, a younger age is more probable than older. A youth would be in the mindset of continuing his education. A man over 30 leaving his trade to follow a rabbi would be countercultural, though not impossible. The behavior of the disciples, as detailed in the Gospels, fits well with the zealous nature and foolishness of adolescence. Picture a gang of teens instead of work-hardened men in the boat when the storm hit, fear-stricken and waking Jesus up for help. 
The forgetful and distracted nature of youth helps me understand how they could hear Jesus say he would die and come back to life, yet act as they did when these things happened. When we age them under 20, we can understand Jesus' patience with them, his low expectations of their behavior, and his teaching style. And that was so interesting to read because, again, when you think about their behavior, it makes so much more sense when you put them as teenagers. Like, if you think about Jesus praying in the garden, I need you guys to stay awake. They all fall asleep. And the story in the Bible where that idea makes sense is when they're out doing their things that Jesus has asked them to do, and then they come back and they're like, yeah, who do you think is going to be the greatest, right? They're all sitting there talking around. You know what I mean? I yeah, could totally, there was that story. <laughs> I could totally hear teens going, no, man, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I know Peter's going to, no, who's going to be the, and Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? To me, that just is so typical teenhood. You know what I mean? It's just, it's perfect. That that fits that age range perfect. And it's completely obvious then why Peter is the leader of that group, Right. Second to Jesus, because they're all children. <laughs> yeah, he's the adult. And we don't mean like little kids, but they're all teenagers. Yeah. Some could be 17, 16, things like that. But under that scenario, it's always understood that John was the youngest. One, he lived longer than anybody else. And he was called Beloved. And the pictures all have him being younger. And so if they are teenagers, I wonder how young John was. Wow, he might that. have been like he 11. He might have been like 13 or yeah, 12, 13, something like that, maybe. After the Pentecost makes sense that these guys who, when you're a teenager, you are invincible anyway, right? You go out and go, man, I got the Holy Spirit. Let's do this, right? Let's go to the temple. We're going to show these old guys what's going on and and be fearless, not not in a disrespectful way, but, but in a fearless uh, adolescent way to go out there and preach. It's just, again, I, I really want to find out how valid that theory is because it makes so much sense in so many so ways to me. It makes so much sense. It, it actually brings to life the disciples in ways I had never thought of them before. Again, that fits right into this whole idea of, of the great possibility of being a teenager. And if that translates all the way back to the time of Christ, that's really cool. That makes that time of our lives even more special. But how does it make it special? It also makes it special because they were loved and they were guided correctly and they were taught to sacrifice and they were taught... And especially in an age where you're naturally self-centered anyway, that they were taught to be selfless. You know, they were taught that they were servants, not masters kind of thing. And that's, again, if they were teenagers, it makes all of the teaching makes them that much more powerful because of it, because they weren't self-centered and they weren't just thinking about themselves, that they were doing for others with that youthful passion and strength. It's just so cool. I love it. It is really cool. (laughs) It's so exciting. It is. It just, it makes so much sense. It it's, does. It's so, <laughs> it's so cool. It does. And as a young person, I love reading about youth in the church. Because when you look at St. Joan of Arc or St. Therese, I mean, both of those women were very young and they were incredible. Yeah, powerful people in different ways, but both both very powerful because, you know, the Lord worked through them. That was kind of cool. And Mary was more than likely probably around the age of 13 or 14, going by when women got married right. in Jewish custom at that time. So think about think about Mary being a teenager and God going, hey, how about being the mother of God? Yeah. How about bringing the Savior into the world? And again, part of that youthful thing would be like, yeah. Okay. Let's do this. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. It's just so cool to think about. It gives new life to it in a certain way. When you look back at your teen years, which were, gosh, <laughs> uh, three years ago, what teen experience do you think kind of symbolizes your teen experience? Uh, 
I don't know. I was such a boring teenager. Like I really was a very good kid because I've always just done what I'm supposed to. That's true. Um, and, and as your father, <laughs> I am very grateful for that. <laughs> I don't have any crazy teen stories. I did get bored in high school and went to college early. I don't know if that counts, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't. Well, I guess that would be your teen experiences. Yeah. That's what I did. All right. Well, that, that may not be common for most of our <laughs> listeners, but that's okay. You know, I was thinking about my teen years, and one of the things that really kind of captures my teen years is I was really involved in our youth group, and I'm the last of eight children, and the last three of us, Paul, Charles, and I, were all in high school at the same time. Paul was a senior, Charles was a junior, I was a freshman, and we were all involved in our youth group at church, and it was cool. It was a really good youth group. We had a lot of friends that have, are still friends today. It was really neat, and one of the things that we used to do is put on a a show for elderly shut-ins for Thanksgiving. So what we would do is they would get the shut-ins and bust them to the main hall in the church, and then we would feed them dinner, and then whatever kind of skills we had, <laughs> which which was kind of a mess. But we would we would entertain them to the best of our ability. So at that time, Charles and I, um, he was playing guitar, I was playing drums. And Paul was being the geek because Paul was always a geek. But anyway, so we thought, well, what we'll do is we'll play. You know, we played music in the house, you know, got together some guys and we'd just play and sing and, and, and whatnot. And so we thought, well, we could play that. I mean, that's, a, that's our talent. So we had one song. We were doing the song Journey, Stone in Love. Okay. And we had a guy. I won't name him because it didn't turn out well, but we had a guy who offered to sing for us and he could do it in rehearsal because, you know, when you're in rehearsal, your vo vocal cords are relaxed, right? But when you're stressed, you can't, it's tightens up and you can't hit those high notes. Well, Steve Perry in Journey has insanely high notes. So we're there and I'm, I'm playing the drums, right? <laughs> and I'm looking out at all these old people who were curious as to what is about to unfold before them. <laughs> and... And my brother Charles is to my left and another friend Mike is to our right and they're playing guitars. And then we have this guy singing out in front and he starts singing and he cannot hit these notes. And, and I felt so bad, right? We all did. It was, it was unfortunate. But, you know, I can't do anything because I'm, I'm playing the drums <laughs> looking out. I can't look away. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like seeing a train accident in slow motion. And this guy's singing. And so what ends up happening is he's struggling and Charles and Mike Rebain, they just turn to face me. <laughs> they just turn to face me. I can't look away. The lead singers turn into them, like kind of like for help. <laughs> and they're looking at me. And the old people are like, why? Why are they doing this to us? Why? Don't they love us? I want to go home now. It was... Um, Gosh, it was so, so bad. One of my favorite stories that you told me was actually when you were in college with your brothers, but you had nieces and nephews who were in high school, but they lived in Farm Central of, yeah, North, Carolina, of North Carolina, Georgia. Yeah. So for Katie and Christy, if you're happening to, to listen to this, they're my nieces. Because I was thinking one day, I don't know if it was me, but we're all sitting down, Paul, Charles, and I going, you know, we could write them a letter because this is right before the internet. So we're like, we could write him a letter or, you know, we have videotape. Why don't we just videotape? If we can send a letter, we can send a videotape. And that would be more fun to do that. So we just set the camera up and we're morons for <laughs> two straight hours. I mean, just whatever we could think of, we would just do. And, and, you know, they were up there and they didn't, I don't think they had cable. 
And it was just, it was, it was a remote area, you know, it's, it's a lot bigger now, but it was really remote back then. So we, we mailed it to them and they watched it and they had nothing else to do. So they watched it all the time. And then whenever their friends were over, they watched it all the time. So when we would go to visit every year, people would recognize us in the stream <laughs> and go, oh, hey, Uncle Peter. And I'm like, I have no idea who you are. but <laughs> I am not your uncle. <laughs> but you've got to be someone that Christy or Katie knows because you're that age. That's just fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, one of the, the, the other stories that it was fun for me as a teenager is I started acting in high school and I was in the show West Side Story and I was a senior and I just <laughs> oh wanted gosh. to be, you remember what? Yes. I wanted to get as, as much experience before I went off to college to study theater. So I didn't want to be a lead or anything. I just wanted to be in the background and, and sing and dance so I could learn how to do that. So I had figured out the dance routine and, and there were these freshmen that were in the, <laughs> there were freshmen that were in the show and just the way you say that i was a senior and there were freshmen right there you know that something <laughs> bad's gonna go down <laughs> so so the choreographer's like listen pete could you teach these guys you know just the the basics of what happens in this so i can work on something else so i'm like yeah and there was this one little thing where you just kind of turn and jump and land right <laughs> so i was like okay so it's it's Leap and hold and hold and land. <laughs> and they're like, okay. And they're looking at me like really aggressive. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, we could do that. Right? So they, they like <laughs> leap and land. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's leap and hold and hold and land. And they would just jump and land because it's gravity. Right? So they're like trying to figure out how to <laughs> hold in midair. So I'm like, no, you guys, seriously, leap and hold and hold. Then you land. <laughs> so they jump up in the air and they're literally like, it looks like they're trying to fly. <laughs> they're, they're slapping their hands really fast like, how do I stay up? <laughs> and, oh, and they were trying so hard. I'm like, and I'm just so disappointed, you know? And then I just couldn't take it anymore. And I'm like, no, I'm seriously, it's, I'm just kidding. It's just, it's just leap and land. <laughs> and they were like, you're such a jerk. And um, I was. That was that was awesome. I feel like that's something my brother would do. <laughs> Leap and hold and, and hold. hold. The second one's really important. <laughs> <laughs> then you land. Oh, man. Good dancers can do this. <laughs> I mean, usually they're connected to something that helps them fly, but <laughs> usually attached to wires, but oh. Just to see them flapping in the air, <laughs> trying to hover. But you were a senior and you I had know. all the power. I knew, I knew what was going on. Well, they looked at me like the choreographer just basically knighted me. You know, she knighted <laughs> me as a choreographer. It's like, uh, yeah, listen, this is what happens, guys. It was awesome. awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. So whether you, you know, kind of mislead freshmen or <laughs> if you cure cancer mm -hmm. or if you play a lot of video games. Yeah. Or I, I saw watched a lot of television as a teenager and um, played bad music mm -hmm. for old people against their will. That <laughs> was nice. Your teen years can be awesome. You're never going to have a greater opportunity to invest in yourself, to focus on something you're passionate about than when you're an adolescent. 
There's never a greater time in your life to do that. So if you're listening to this and you have a passion, God, I believe, has given everyone a gift. I think you need to identify it and explore it. It could be something as simple as being, maybe you're a good listener. Maybe you you can help people through problems. Maybe you're good at math. Maybe you sculpt. You know, Maybe you're a runner or whatever. Or maybe you cook and you can volunteer. But the point is everybody has a gift. And I think if they, they take those years to explore it and expand it and see what they're capable of, it's there's no better time to do it. So do you have any recommendations? I do, Dorothea. I'm going to go back to my teen years. Okay. Um, I, this is a an album. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, well, wow. it's a CD. Now. <laughs> Actually, it's a not even a CD. So wait, it went from an EP to an LP to, an, to a CD to an MP3 to a download. Anyway, the band that really changed everything when I was growing up was Van Halen. And the first Van Halen album, self-titled Van Halen, was amazing. And Eddie Van Halen, their two brothers, Alex and Eddie. Eddie was the guitarist. Alex was the drummer. A lot like Charles and I, except they had talent. (laughs) And Eddie Van Halen kind of changed the face of the way people played guitars. He was amazing. We would listen to that album, and it was like something we'd never heard before. And it's hard to look back on something and see the newness of it, because it's now been copied and recopied and over and over and over again. But at that time, we just used to listen. There's especially a a solo piece called Eruption that we would listen to and had no idea how he was making his guitar make that sound. Wow. And it was amazing. So Teen Years, Van Halen, first album, Awesomeness. Well, if I go back to my teen years, which is so long ago. Way (laughs) back. One of my favorite shows growing up that I think does a great job of just embodying growing up is Boy Meets World. Yeah, you do so, love, you love that show. I love that show. So if you have never seen it, um, even if you're not a teenager, and check it out because it'll probably bring back a lot of memories for you. It's such an honest look at growing up was like back then. And that '70s show does a great job of what it was like when I was growing up. So check it out. So, so teen years, Dorothea. Yeah. Big time. A lot yes. of possibility. A lot of wasted time. Wasted opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of wasted time, a lot of of bad food that you get away with. I don't really think that applies to me. I kind of just ate turkey in high school. Oh, you did. Like you said, you're only a a teenager for about an hour and a half. All right, Dorothea. So this this episode is in the books. If you would like to contact us, you can email us at Pete at Pete Bauer Books, B-A-U-E-R, books.com. That's Pete at Pete Bauer Books.com. Let us know what you think about the show. Let us know of any subject you want us to talk about. Also, you can comment in the comment section. Also, please rate us on iTunes because you love listening to us and want other people to do so as well. So rate us on iTunes. Yeah, just do yeah. it. It actually does help and it's kind of nice to see. So, Well, if you do it well. <laughs> if you rate us well. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not so nice to see. Yeah, not so nice at all. So don't do it if you don't like us. All right, Dorothea. So that's it. That is it. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.